I still think he might be the best candidate. This is a glorified ambassador role, I think. I do know why I am opting for one particular candidate. How do you actually think you can successfully win a contest against Michael G. Higgins? Welcome to The Candidate, the Journal.ie's in-depth look at who's running in the presidential campaign. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and I've sat down with each hopeful to get a closer look at who they are and what they want to do as president. Like, my mother died of breast cancer when I was 10. My first husband died of cancer, so I know the ravages of cancer very well. And so if he would told me that time that there was a vaccine to prevent that, of course I'd be leaping on it. The same as I am now for HPV. Leon Arida is the focus of this episode of The Candidate. I'm joined in DIT Angel Street studio by our reporter, Nikki Ryan, who has been looking into her background. Nikki, can you tell us a little bit about her? So yeah, Lena Rieda, she's 51 years old. She's from West Cork, but she was born in Dublin. Her father is very well known. He was the very influential Irish composer, Sean Arieda. And her parents were something which she has brought up quite often in this campaign. They both died when she was quite young and she's put forward this as an example of how she has faced her own personal challenges and hardships. She currently still lives in West Cork with her three children and her husband, Nikki. But it's not me, it's different <laughs> Nikki, obviously. Um, people would actually be a bit familiar with her because she's a current MEP. Yes, that's right. But she hasn't always worked in politics. She worked in media as a television producer and she actually helped set up TG Cahar back in the mid 90s. She first became formally involved in politics when she joined Sinn Féin in 2011. She was their Irish language officer back then. But then within, within three years, she jumped from that backroom job to running successfully as an MEP in 2014 for Ireland South. She's remained there since and she cites Brexit, rural Ireland um, social justice, neutrality, climate change as some of the main areas that she has focused on. And that party involvement actually unusually makes her unique in this race. Yeah, actually that makes her the most kind of traditional candidate um, in, in in this election. Um, the other candidates were nominated by county councils with the exception of Michael D. Higgins who was able to put himself forward which is very handy for him. But Nirieda is the only candidate who was nominated by TDs and in this case as you would expect 20 of her fellow Sinn Féin TDs. And most people remember how the late Martin McGuinness ran for Sinn Féin back in 2011 in the presidential election um, but he came in behind Michael D. Higgins and Sean Gallagher. Yeah, so that campaign obviously wasn't successful for the party. What's uh, Nirida focusing on for her campaign this time out? Well, her main focuses so far, um, they range from trying to get those who emigrated during the crash to come back home again. Another thing she's mentioned is to recognise and give an award to employers who are paying a fair wage. Um, she has also put a focus on, as you would expect from any Sinn Féin candidate, um, efforts to bring about a united Ireland. So have there been any controversial moments so far? Yes, um, the main thing that everyone wants to know about, and she's been asked this again and again and again, is her stance on vaccines. Um, She previously shared concerns about the safety of the HPV vaccine, which has been proven to be safe, but she repeatedly has sought to clarify her stance on that since then. It's definitely something I'll be asking her about when I interview her in the Ireland Institute on Pier Street. You'll notice probably a a difference in sound quality. We're moving from studio to that house um, when we interview her, as she unfortunately could not come to us. What's striking about Leah Narida in this race is that she's the only candidate who's actually come through what we would see as the normal route. She has a political party, Sinn Féin, and they nominated her. So what I wanted to know is, is that the only reason she's here, that she's loyal to the party and they asked her to do it? 
Well, first of all, I'd like to say that I certainly didn't wake up one morning thinking, do you know what, I want to be author on the Heron. Um, and yeah, I've had a very few busy years of it being a member of the European Parliament out in Brussels. And I was approached by different people to say, would you consider it? Um, and between back and forth and talking to my husband about it and talking to my kids about it, I said, do you know what, if I didn't put my name forward, it's probably something I'd always regret. Uh, it's the things you don't, that, you, that you don't try or the things you regret. So... Yeah, I said I'd, I'd do it because I wanted to do it, because I think we're at a stage now in our history that it's time for change, it's time for a fresh voice. And I think I offer all of that to it because of my work in the European Parliament, because of my own background. Um, I'm ready for that challenge. I want to bring that energy and commitment to it. And I'm excited. I always love a challenge. Would you regret not being president or regret not having run the campaign and actually doing this, doing these four weeks of campaigning around Ireland? Both. Ultimately, you're in it to be the president. Um, otherwise, why would you go through a kind of a torturous affair of being under incredible media scrutiny and sitting in cold rooms? So, no, you do it um, ultimately to, to get there. But I would like to be able to come out of this campaign thinking I gave it my all. And at least I started the conversation. I started a dialogue. I started leading the conversation about where we need to be as a country in years to come um, and not in the very distant future, because as you probably know already, one of the things that I'm trying to push is that I think we have progressed very much as a society. We have changed radically for the last seven years with repeal the eighth and the marriage equality. And I think our next big conversation has to be about a united Ireland. So at least I'm glad that I've led that conversation already and that other candidates are now starting to pick up on that. So it's a huge opportunity to uh, put forward a new vision and if I make it to the Auris, yes, of course, I'll be delighted and honoured if the people would consider me for that. But I'm concentrating on one day at a time at the moment in the campaign. With those goals, would you not be better off being a TD? Or is that somewhere in your mind as well? If this doesn't work out, that could be the path. No, funnily enough, I've been asked a few times, uh, not by the party, but other people, would I consider running for the Dáil? In fact, somebody had, had it in the Clare Champion that I was going to stand in Clare. Love the people of Clare, but I'm sure we have Clare people that have more roots than I have in there to, to stand for that. I love the position of the MEP in terms of what it's given me from a global perspective. Um, I think Dáil Éireann, although obviously it is necessary very much to have TDs in there to legislate, I think the role of an MEP gives you that bit more of an outward looking uh, global politics and I always love the challenge of that and it's about bringing that I think to a national stage now because even though I feel I've been very effective as an MEP it's about bringing it and reaching it to a wider audience if you like and you know targeting people north, south, east and west with that message of where we want to be going um, as a new Ireland and as a new president, that's what I want to bring to it. So no, I have no desire to be a Tachtadala. That was one of the lines actually I picked out um, to ask you about from your um, speech on, after your selection was, you know, being an, a new TD or a new president for a new Ireland. And we've heard a lot of that high-minded, high high uh, speak from, from all six, from the five candidates and the incumbent as well, talking about what the president can do. But from an, an ordinary person, and when people talk about it in the pub or, or we have chats about it in in the office about what the president actually does and a lot of people will say god it sounds like a nightmare you have to go and do a lot of chit chat with people you're not allowed to have an opinion on things you're not allowed to do a lot of things that come naturally especially to politicians does any of that worry you that the day-to-day -day is maybe a bit tedious no not at all and in fact i thrive on different situations i thrive on meeting people 
Um, and that's why I love the MEP part of that job where you're out in the constituency, you're engaging with people all the but time. But you can give your but opinions in, and, and have a say in policy and, you know, look at where Europe is going. If you're a president of Ireland, you you can give nice speeches. Is that is that the extent of it? No, I disagree with you on that. I think it's what you make of it. And yes, there are restrictions within the office because obviously you're not proposing legislation. But certainly I would be using tools such as, and it has been underutilised, um, such as addressing the House of Arachthus, which you're very much entitled to do so. Mary Robinson and Mary McAleese did, did this quite effectively. And I would hope to carry on that. Now, if you, you had over the last few years, can you think of any examples? What would you have addressed it all over? Well, certainly I wouldn't be turning away from the social injustice that we see, the homelessness that we see, you know, our education, our health. There is a number of things. There's a huge long list of things that I think that our legislators uh, need to be reminded of almost that I would like to be that voice of the ordinary people and the pulse to bring it to them. Now, I can influence, but I won't be able to tell them to legislate, but I would hope that they would follow that. And certainly it's about having that kind of a firm voice that you say, listen, we, we can't turn away from existential threats such as climate change. We need to be steering our country in a new direction for our children and our children's children. So all of that, I think, can be brought to bear in those addresses that you can do to the Arachthus, which they haven't really been used, in my view, effectively, certainly not for a number of years. But Mary McAleese, like I said, and Mary Robinson did that. They were transformative. They opened dialogue. You know, it became a voice and a platform, I suppose, for recognising gender equality, for instance, for women. Uh, and gave us that kind of sense of being important and being at the table. So we are now a far more modern and progressive society. Uh, and I think it's about pushing that out a bit further. Is there something you think Michael D. Higgins could have done about the rising housing and homelessness crisis then? I think that's really for Michael D. Higgins with the greatest of respect to answer. I'm not here to judge his presidency. I think he's been a good president. I know Michael D. personally. Um, but I always think it's a good idea to give a choice to people and no matter who's in power, I think, I don't think it's fair that we would have had a 14 year run without giving a mandate to the Uchtaran. So it's about choice, but it's also about the future. And I'm definitely and firmly rooted in that future and where we need to be going. So with the greatest of respect, it is really up to Michael D to answer those particular questions about his term. Okay, and for our listeners then to, to talk about what you've been up to for the last seven years, I think there sometimes is a disconnect um, between what's happening in, in Europe, in Parliament, and, and what people are aware of here. Um, so I guess just to, to let our listeners know um, what you have been doing over the last four years and, and say maybe what your standout achievements have been there. Undoubtedly, there's a huge disconnect because, look, once you go over to Europe, people think you're over in Brussels. But we're definitely, we have four Sinn Féin MEPs. We cover north, south, east and west. Uh, I sit on the Fisheries Committee. I sit on the Budgets Committee. I'm a coordinator of that. And I sit on the Culture and Education Committee. And I suppose if you were to say what outstanding achievements in my term there have I done, the ones for me that stand out would be two years ago uh, when Brexit first became such a huge issue. Uh, I proposed legislation or I drafted legislation that the Good Friday Agreement would be protected in all of its parts and that the integrity of the Good Friday Agreement would be absolutely uh, supported and continue to be supported. I had most of the MEPs, there are 751 MEPs in the Parliament and the majority of them voted in favour of that. Now I had to go and network with them because they weren't inside my own political group. So that meant having bilateral discussions. And thankfully they did. And now that is one of the key articles uh, in terms of the Brexit negotiations. 
So that was a really proud moment for me because it was safeguarding the peace process and giving a really strong message from the European Parliament that they were standing for Ireland. The other thing that I did, which I was What do you, just to put in there, what do you think of Arlene Foster's comments on that then over the last, in recent days? I think it's completely unhelpful. I think it's a distraction that she's using uh, for the fact that they're just not prepared to have a deal. I think we are heading for a no-deal scenario. Uh, which will be disastrous. I've worked in Brexit steering groups. I've met with the main negotiators, Barnier, Verhofstadt, in Europe. Uh, and as I said, I've been on Brexit steering groups within the Parliament itself. That informs the negotiators of what the position of the Parliament is in terms of the different groups. So, look, we could talk until the cows come home about what the Tories and what the DUP are going to do when it comes to Brexit. They don't know themselves. They're in disarray. Uh, and they're giving mixed messages. What what role do you think the president will have in any scenario, really? Because no scenario is going to be good for Ireland come March 29th next year. What role will the president have? We've heard Gavin Duffy, one of uh, your fellow candidates, talking about what he could do in terms of business. And um, what do you think the president should do or could do? Well, I think ultimately the president will have that uh that will have to be decided in one regard by the government. I don't think as a president you can start becoming a kind of a maverick and going out doing business deals, for instance. That is not the position of the president. But what I would bring to it would be those connections that I have built up and the skills that I've built up within all those Brexit steering groups, within talking to the main negotiators, that if the government wanted me on some state function or some bilateral diplomatic relations, certainly I would put myself forward in any way that would be of use. Uh, and currently where I stand on Brexit, it's about trying to figure out well, we need the support of the, the remaining EU27, which they are. The Irish government are holding a firm line, which is really good to see. Um, but I think come March we're in serious trouble because people aren't really looking at the details, for instance, the common fisheries policy. I mentioned to you that I'm uh, also on that committee, so I know only too well what our coastal communities are facing, the kind of car crash scenario that's coming down the road. And crucially, I think, one of the like the budget committee, okay, let's face it, nobody gets really excited about figures and facts, but it is the money that drives a lot of our investment here in terms of structural funds, in terms of cap, all of that. And I know what's coming down the next seven years called the multi-annual financial framework. I'm in the group with President Tajani working on that. And it's useful to know what's coming down as a result of Brexit because we're going to have such a big deficit. Um, I made sure that there was provision there that the European Investment Bank has a particular funding stream which goes into the social economy, social enterprise, cooperatives. So that's been a very big achievement for me and my term as an MEP. I've also been a huge language activist. You know that I'm a Gaelgor, Ban Gaelach, Ban on um, and I put language and looking for that recognition. It is officially recognised in Europe. Um, but there's does, a derogation. Does that help the language here being officially recognised in Europe? I think it does because every other country, it's only when you go out of the country that you realise how important it is to have your own language and to have that identity. But if we don't actually have it, so people will look at you and, and it's a, a special, it's a notable thing about you. So it's not that it's a normal thing that Irish people have the language. Um, so when we do go abroad, we actually don't have it. So does having it recognised in Europe actually help more people to speak it here? I think it does. And in that, I actually was instrumental. Again, my budget uh, hat being on in supporting 3.1 million, I think, put towards translation and interpreters. That created employment, which is very important for our people here, uh, because there's a legal connotation. The Irish language, as you know, is the Bunracht, the first language. It is written Osgoelga, and it takes precedence over the English. So there's legal and political ramifications for that in terms of interpretation. But for the language in general, 
we've seen a huge explosion of Gaelic school, and it's not, it's no longer an exclusive uh, thing of the Gaeltacht. The Gaeltachts, in fact, are, are suffering because we don't have the proper investment like so many other parts of rural Ireland. But I think we have seen a huge explosion in the Gaelskolina. And for me as an Irish MEP, and it gets recognised so much by other MEPs who speak in their own language. You know, we see the French and the German and the Maltese and, you know, we, we celebrate multiculturalism, we celebrate diversity and we celebrate our languages and very much so on a European level. I think it's time that we took ownership of that here. And I think people are probably a little bit afraid to use the couple of fuckle they have because there's been such an emphasis on grammar all our lives growing up in school. And I guarantee you that if I wrote a piece of Gaelic and if I had a tiny little grammatical error, I might have 10 people giving out about it. Whereas if you do the same in English, you won't. Um, I might add that this never comes from people from the Gaelic because we're very happy to just use our language. We don't think of it as, oh God, I'm speaking my language. It's just how we communicate. Uh, and it's very natural to slip from one to the other. So I would be very much as an Uachtaran trying to promote that sense of pride and identity in our language. And I will introduce several initiatives to try and encourage people to embrace it. Uh, because I think by and large, most people love it, particularly when you do go abroad. I bet you any amount of people listening to this, when they go abroad and they want to talk about somebody, they'll start talking about the Moscow. But be very afraid because a lot of people in Europe, you know, might understand what you're actually saying. I think um, one of the themes of this campaign has been people telling the six candidates that there's a lot of things they can't do. They're, you know, you're talking about policy things, you're talking about things that you won't have power to do when you're president. Um, but on the other hand, I do think to, to be to be able to make an informed vote, we need to know what your opinions are on certain things. So I just wanted to ask you a few things about kind of big society questions. It's been a difficult uh, time for women, say for the last 18 months, we've had the Me Too movement. Um, you've mentioned helping to promote women on the journey to full equality. What is stopping us from that and how far are we away from it, do you think? I think there needs to be a cultural shift, really. Uh, and this comes, I think, in one way from women as well, having to support each other, having to have a difficult conversation, I suppose, about what we as women feel about other women and how we support each other in that sense. Obviously, there's gender equality in terms of pay. I mean, when I talk to my girls about, you know, some women not, not being on the same wage structure as their fellow men, they're horrified and rightly so. So we need to tackle all of those. But I think as women, we need to work more collectively together. I think sometimes uh, no more so than, than, than men have their own issues. As women dealing with other women, we need to be more supportive of that, I think. And in that, Sinn Féin have obviously had their own issues with bullying in the party and the, the Maria Cahill um, historical case that's, that's come up. Do you think that the party has dealt with that in a way that is showing that support women to women? Has Mary Lou Macdonald, have you, have all the other women shown that support to Maria Cahill in a way that is acceptable to you? Sure. Well, firstly, I think what happened to Maria Cahill was dreadful. I can't even imagine as a woman what she's gone through. Uh, and I don't think anything that I say or that Mary Lou or anybody else says will ever go far enough to apologise for that. You're never going to undo that. Um, and I think it's how we learn lessons and how we treat people and going forward. And for, for Maria Cahill, that's about providing whatever support structures, whatever information that needs to be had, needs to be there for her. Um, in relation to bullying and what you mentioned there, yeah, look, at there were issues. Um, I'm sure every party has issues with it and we are no different from any other party in that regard. 
But Mary Lou has put structures and processes in place now to deal with that effectively. There's a um, lot more numbers from Sinn Féin come out. It, it, there was kind of story after story for a couple of years that you know, we were able to count you know, the, the number of complaints and the number of people coming forward. That wasn't happening in other parties. Do you think it's that's because they're keeping it more quiet in other parties or that there was actually more of a problem in Sinn Féin? No, I think there was, there was, def- there was a problem. Um, I think myself that some of it might have had to do with, and this is no reflection on the people who were saying they were bullied. Uh, bullies shouldn't be tolerated on any level. But I think they were quite young uh, and it's maybe because we, we attract a younger voter, I suppose, and we try and encourage young people to come on board because it's their future we're talking about. They need to be at that table. But it's also about recognising the fact that you need a certain level of maturity, I suppose, when you're in public life. You have to develop a bit of a thick skin and maybe those support structures weren't there, particularly about among the younger Uh, people that have left the party or that have issues with the party so from that regard yeah I think you learn lessons and you grow organically as a party and we have grown massively so it's about ironing out those issues and putting processes in place to make sure that support structures are there and certainly as women um, you have to obviously and you want to uh, and it's only the right thing to support other women to come on board we're 51% of the population we need to have a voice at the table on local level and on national level as well as European level. But the proper structures have to be put in place and they are being put in place by Mary Lou. Yeah, you mentioned being a woman in Ireland and obviously for the last few months since Vicky Phelan's court case, um, being a woman here has been quite difficult for a lot of people because we still feel like we're living in a paternalistic society and that goes to everything from you know our, our health care um, to our pay. Um, what do you think coming from where you are in Brussels or people talking about the cervical check um, and, you know, Dr. Scally saying that there's like verging on misogyny within our healthcare system still. Is that something that's completely alien in Brussels or is, is it a problem that we're dealing with globally? I think it's probably more prevalent in Ireland to be truthful about it. We talk, obviously, you know, we have a lot of very active um, MEPs that are very much there to represent women and women's rights and we liaise with them very often Um, but it's not something that is continually talked about even though we try to gender proof everything in what we do I think there's a more an awareness really from our European perspective on that gender inequality whereas in Ireland I think it's there but it hasn't been tackled properly it hasn't been tackled in terms of that cultural shift that needs to be taken into consider that needs to be worked on uh, and certainly like the, the Vicky Feeling case and Emma Vic Bahuna should never have happened um, and God knows what other tragedies are out there waiting to unfold and we need to ensure that there are procedures in place that this is not going to be something we're going to be dealing with again in 10 years and 20 years time so from that point of view, I think we have an awful long way to travel in this country to catch up to our European neighbours. One of the biggest controversies of your campaign or one of the things you've had to deal with, um, obviously each candidate has had their, their big question, and yours has been around the HPV vaccine and obviously kind of brought into even more sharp focus in the last while, um, obviously because of the cervical check scandal, but also there was another person trying um, to get on the ticket who also had um, kind of different opinions on the HPV vaccine. So it, it really has been brought into the spotlight. You've been asked a lot, so just kind of wanted to look at what you have said and so you've said you fully support the vaccine now and just to kind of dive into that a bit more your statement said that um, you have all the you got all the information you needed afterwards what was that information that you were missing back in 2016 when you made the initial comments about not being sure about giving it to your daughter I think it was really 
very, it didn't go into any huge detail. And also, I think as, as other parents might remember in 2016, it was a very short turnaround. You had something like 24 hours before you could hand in your, your note. Uh, and that was the issue with me, that I didn't think it sufficed or satisfied me as a parent to know exactly what, you know, what affects, what benefits, all of that. I didn't feel that it was comprehensive enough. I'm really glad since then that the uptake has increased hugely and that the HSE have in fact updated all of that. So there is no reason for anybody out there to have any concerns about the HPV. I fully endorse it. I hope that they extend it to boys because anything that's going to spare anybody from getting cancer, like my mother died of breast cancer when I was 10. My first husband died of cancer, so I know the ravages of cancer very well. Um, and so if he would told me that time that there was a vaccine to prevent that, of course, I'd be leaping on it the same as I am now for HPV. But my concern was the lack of information. And now that that information has been updated and we're all absolutely confident of it, I completely fully endorse it. I was never against it. It was purely on the lack of information that I had a concern as a parent. It was a bit naive of me to go on. Um, that's a lesson that I learned. It was an expen expensive lesson in the, in the, the regard that my children are, are, you know, you protect your kids more than anything and I shouldn't have brought them on the radio I shouldn't have discussed them on the radio in that sense it was very naive of me I think it was people obviously don't want to delve into your children's medical records but if you're going to be president they want to know um, say for me as a woman I want to know well what does our president think about these things that do keep us all safe um, and as you said if the vaccine is working with boys it, it works um, yeah. more effectively um, so just to be crystal clear if, if you had that decision for yourself or for somebody else now you would want the vaccine to be administered. Oh God, absolutely. I would actually campaign for it uh, and I will campaign for it and I will commend every single mother and father out there to get it done. I find it interesting though, I wonder, and this is a question that I put to myself recently, I wonder if I was a man, would I have been grilled as much about it? Because it's a parental decision. It's both mother and father usually in these situations or whether you were a single parent. You know, it's a decision that shouldn't be solely based for the mothers to make. Um, but absolutely 110% I think it is brilliant and it's fantastic that science has advanced so much that we can now save lives. And if this had been done years ago, we wouldn't have had the tragedy of Vicky Fielding and Emmanuel Bahuna. Okay, we're going to take a couple of questions um, from our readers. Well, I, suppose, I think some of them are a bit um, naive as to what exactly the president can do. Uh, you know, it's just uh, they, you know, they're not talking about curing homelessness and waiting lists and all the rest, do they really know what their limitations are? I think certainly my credentials uh, from my experience in Brussels gives me a very good insight into what the role of the President is and it is limited. She's quite right in saying that you're not going to be able to cure homelessness or any of those issues. Um, she's 100% right in that and anybody who tells you differently is wrong. But what you can do is, like I said, use the powers that you do have to address, address the Iraqis with, regarding legislation. And also I want to introduce initiatives, which you can do, and you can be quite smart about this. And an initiative that I want to introduce is one in particular, I'll keep it short, it's called Decency at Work Charter, and it's a charter for decency in order for employers and employees to sign up to it, and they can engage on a social partnership basis with trade unions, so that employees are not afraid to join unions, that they will sign up to a kind of a charter where you say, decency at work, fair pay, um, without fear of, it, of, of harassment or, or by joining unions, that that should be open to them to the, encourage that social partnership. And also to have a life balance, you know, so that you're not working 
all the hours on earth because we all seem to get so much more caught up with work we can't leave the phone at home and it's about creating those fair conditions it's something that will grow organically as a process and I would hope as a that at the end of each year that the company the employer who has signed up to this and has developed this and has agreed to that fundamental charter they will be given a special recognition so it's about boosting and it's about encouraging it's not curing homelessness but it's about trying to create a fair work environment for public service and right across the board. What exactly is the ethos on agriculture? Like, how do they intend to improve it? Or do they kind of see it as a long-term project for years to come? What in, say, a few generations' time? will Is there going to be an exit of people from the land the way it has been for years and years, that the people are leaving slowly and never coming back? So what? how are they going to try and change that? I think... We are in a huge, I suppose we have a huge problem with the uh, rural Ireland becoming bereft of people and bereft of opportunities because of just lack of investment. And I know putting on my European hat, um, that cap is of, of vital importance to our rural dwellers and the government needs to be held to account that they draw down all the funding available because I know that all funding is not drawn down. So that's one thing that should be done to make sure that there's equal distribution of cap payment. Uh, but again, that's a politician's job to do. It is not the president's role to do that. But having that knowledge is helpful when I want to hold the government to account in those wonderful speeches that I'm going to be giving to them, which I'm sure they'd be delighted to hear me coming in, talking to them about that. And I also think in the presidential role that you have a duty when you're out on foreign affairs missions, even though it's not a political role, it is about improving bilateral agreements and relations. And it is about ensuring that the image that we have of having that very, very high quality produce, agricultural produce, that that's promoted on every level, particularly if we're going to have Brexit, that is going to have an impact on trade. If we're going to have Brazilian beef coming down from the north, for instance, it's going to reduce the value and the quality of beef and agricultural produce here. So it's about ensuring that the standards are kept and promoted and that we keep this green image that we have. The potential is enormous, but the political will needs to be there to invest properly to ensure that young farmers can stay on the land because they're leaving in their droves. We have more farmers over the age of 75 than we have under 35. So who's going to be caretaking the land in years to come? And now is the time with food security, with food shortages, when we talk about food 2020 or food 2050 even, uh, we need to be putting those plans in place now. When you're talking about the vision of Ireland there from abroad or, f- or from internally, um, and you're obviously would like a, a united Ireland, and you talked at the start of this interview about that, what changes do you see happening? Things like what what would happen in the Constitution? Would you like Aaron Levine to still be our national anthem? Will we have the tricolour? What's your vision for if this, this might happen a lot sooner than it would have kind of when we were talking about this three years ago? Well, isn't it great that we're actually at a time where we're even asking these questions? Uh, and certainly as president, I wouldn't be able, nor would I want to be telling people this is what it needs to be. You're not president yet, though, so you yeah. can tell me now. Well, I can tell you now. Can I? <laughs> no, I don't. I think it's about having the... Like, I don't have all the answers to that of would we get rid of Aronavian. Personally, I like Aronavian. I know the words of it, so I don't have an issue with singing it. Uh, and it's that sense of pride of place. But it's also about making room for the unionists. It's also about me, if as Uachtaran... I would certainly go to the Orange Lodge, I would go to Shankill Road, I would meet all the unionists, I would try and bring them on board and open that door of saying, look, you want, we need to respect your identity. If you want to be British, that's perfectly fine. If you also want to be Irish, that's perfectly fine. It's about that inclusivity. Uh, and economically, it makes more sense for us to have just the one island. And yes, it would have constitutional ramifications, of course. 
and that's a more long-term process to get that uh, trashed out, if you like. But at the very least, we need to be talking about what, how is it going to work? How is it going to work from a trade perspective, even from an EU budget perspective? Because we're going to be now getting more of a slice, even though we're contributing 1.1%, or we will be, we're contributing 1% of the GDP at the moment, that will have to go up. Um, and it's all of those things have to come into it, you know. And for me, as an Uachtaran, the two things that I would safeguard uh, hugely would be our sovereignty and our neutrality. But we need to be doing this collectively as an island and that conversation. We need to be preparing for when a referendum does happen. There's no point in it being dictated by anybody other than Irish people, whether that, is, whether that means that you're a unionist or whatever background or colour or persuasion you are, it needs to be inclusive. On the 28th of October, um, when the results are in, what are you happy? What are you happy with? I'm prepared for both doors. I'm prepared for. Um, you always have to be, I think, as a politician and as somebody who has, you know, received a huge. I think it was 125,000 first preference votes, and I have to say, I was quite shocked uh, and then pleasantly surprised, obviously, in the European elections. So you do prepare for wondering, well, I may not get it, but I may get it. That's up to the good people of Ireland. And on the day, I think so long as I know that I gave it my all, that I won't have any regrets, that at least I tried, at least I put my head above the parapet. Um, and I Would think you be disappointed something. if you don't put a dent in that 67% that Michael D. Higgins has? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not doing this for kind of some speculation of the media intensity. I'm in this to win it, because otherwise, why would you put yourself through it? Um, so, yeah, it's it's all to play for yet. And I just would be curious to see what the Irish public and on the ground, how, how they're going to vote. So far, the reaction has been extraordinary. I think people are hungry for a change. I think people are ready for a new, energetic, passionate and committed woman like Misha to come forward. What's through the second door then? So if it's not the, the door in Brussels? I think it's the old Brussels, uh, Brussels Parliament. Um, and I will finish off the term there and, and stand again, hopefully. Okay. Thanks very much, Lena Rida. For each episode of The Candidate, I'm going to be joined by Ronan Duffy from the Journal.ie, who has been looking at each of the candidates' campaigns so far and analysing what has just happened. Ronan, when I was interviewing Leona Rida there, I had almost forgotten she's an MEP. She mm. definitely hasn't forgotten. Yeah, she did talk a lot about the fact that she's an MEP and her work as an MEP. And perhaps, you know, that is a smart way to go about it, given the fact that, you know, this race is light on the politicians, given that we have an incumbent and we have John Freeman, obviously, who's a senator, but people perhaps wouldn't be that familiar with her. So, so going at that as the experienced candidate, as someone who's used to legislation, I can understand why she, why she brought that into it a lot. Yeah, especially because I guess some of the other candidates, especially say Gavin Duffy, has been trying to go hard on Brexit where she's going, I hear I'm in Brussels, I know a lot more about this well, than she, you do. Well, she could very talk openly about Brexit. She says, oh, you know, I've brought it up in Brussels. She said she's spoken about the peace process. So she does have that kind of standing to talk about issues where perhaps other people don't, even though people criticise in this race that as president you won't be able to talk about things. She can talk about these things now because she's an MEP. 
So she's kind of put that to the forefront and Sinn Féin a little bit to the back. Obviously, their party's slogan isn't on uh, her posters. And she said on the Claire Byrne Live that, you know, she'll have to resign from the party. So she's trying to like do that early, I guess. Um, But we talked a bit about Sinn Féin and some of the problems of the party. How do you think she handled all of that? Well, I I think the answer she gave on that um, specifically was what you might consider one of the stronger answers we've heard from Sinn Féin on it. She addressed that it was a problem and she actually gave a reason for it. She talked about the fact that Sinn Féin do have a lot of younger new members and that perhaps has caused some kind of friction. That's something we haven't heard from Mary Lou MacDonald and others. So you have to say that she was more honest about that. As regards to the wider issue of her being in Sinn Féin, I think she did demonstrate during the um, the interview that she's a polished performer and I think that's probably what Sinn Féin really wanted to take from this. They wanted to show somebody who's perhaps a softer edge to the party and I think she she really tried to get that across during the course of the interview. And in terms of the United Ireland stuff, is she on message to uh, to the same extent as other members of the party? I, I, I really think she is on message on that. I mean, She's not going out calling for a border poll tomorrow, but I think we're all very clear that she is looking for a border poll and that United Ireland is definitely um, part of her thinking. I think she described it as the next big conversation we're going to have. And, you know, it's undeniable that is a conversation we're going to have in the near future. And of course, Sinn Féin wants to be part of that and she has to she has to bring that in. Has she finally put the HPV controversy to bed? Yeah, on HPV I think you could hear from her she's a little frustrated about answering the questions on it Um, I think that's understandable but she did introduce her children into debate a couple of years ago so she has to be she has to be open answering questions on it the one thing on that is I'm not sure exactly how that is going to hurt her I mean she says the parents uh, views have to be listened to and I think parents especially like feeling that their views are listened to, even though they know that doctors are the experts in this, they they don't like being dismissed. And I think that is something that perhaps will play to some people. And only time will tell on that. Thanks very much, Ronan. Thank you for listening to The Candidate with me, Sinead O'Carroll and Ronan Duffy. This episode was produced by Aoife Barry, co-produced and edited by Nikki Ryan. Thanks to the entire team at thejournal.ie and acting editor Christine Bohan. Thanks also to DIT Angel Street for the use of its recording studio. Music you've heard is by Incompetech. You can find all other episodes of The Candidate on soundcloud.com forward slash the underscore candidate. Happy voting.